Shall we, shall we pray as we look at God's word together? Father God, we thank you, Lord, for each one of us here this morning. Lord, we thank you that we can worship you. And, and Lord, we just thank you for the good things that we get to enjoy and take for granted, Lord, in this country, in churches like ours. Father God, may that never uh, be something we do actually take for granted. May we realize that we have freedom, Lord. We have that freedom to be your community, Lord. Freedom to come to you, uh, come together and to be right with the living God. Father God, may we never take any of the goodness of our God for granted. Bless our children, Lord, our young people as they go upstairs. Lord, we bless those that are looking after them. May they be filled with your Holy Spirit. Lord, may it not just be a, uh, a glorified crèche, uh, which it isn't, Lord, um, but may they not feel they're being packed off so we can be adults for a few minutes. Lord, may they realize, Lord, that we love them and we value them and we want them to know what we know, uh, and we pray they would do that. And Lord, bless us now as we read your word together, Lord. May we uh, not just um, get through 25 minutes, but may we listen and really think through what your word's saying to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. It's uh, good to be back. Um, I won't ask if it's good to have us back, but um, feel free to say yes at any point. That's all right. Thanks, Pat. Um, so it's good. It's good to be back, Pat. It's good, to, good that you're pleased to have us. Uh, we went to France last week. Um, I'm convinced that no one actually lives in France. Um, if you've ever been to anywhere outside of Paris, there's no one there. Um, literally. We were in a little village. Um, I can't pronounce it. Um, in English, it's Pledal, um, but I'm sure that's not how the French say it. And uh, the only time I saw a French person was when I decided to do a three-point turn. And then 20 of them appeared behind me, honking their horns and shouting at me. Um, but I became more and more like Del Boy uh, as the uh, seven days progressed. Uh, I found myself on the last day when someone gave me something saying uh, bonjour rather than thank you. Uh, so uh, language isn't particularly my strong suit. I got an F in French in secondary school. Uh, but I, yeah, anyway. Um, but actually, as hard as French may be to, uh, to say, English is apparently not a very easy language to learn. If your uh, English isn't your first language, apparently... There are a whole list of words that make absolutely no sense. Apparently words like choir doesn't actually make any sense. Squirrel uh, is a word that if your English uh, isn't your first language, it doesn't make any sense. Um, Worcestershire is another one. If you're an American, you may pronounce it Worcestershire, um, which is incorrect, of course. Um, But there are other words that even those of us that have grown up learning English for 37 years may still struggle with. I'm still a about, I think, grade D in English, uh, personally, where I am. Um, and I've got a few words. Uh, one of the first words will appear on the screen. I wonder if anyone have a go at pronouncing this. This is an English word. Um, so, you know, if it's your first language, anyone got any ideas? Janice will know it, obviously, but you can go second. Anyone fancy giving that a go? Easy. No, no one feeling brave. That Janice, do you know what it is? Do you know how to say it though? <laughs> no, that you're right though. I think we go with Barry's one if that's all right. So, <laughs> so that's quite hard to say. Another next word. Any ideas? Pardon. <laughs> um, ten points for telling me what it means. Okay. Fantastic, look at that. I had to Google that this morning to work out what it was. And the final, final one, which is a lot easier, but I bet no one can say this five times really quickly. 
That's very strange. <laughs> it's like we've always joined some sort of weird cult. Anemone, 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 anemone. Um, so that's quite, they're quite hard to add. There's a whole load of other words we could have um, you know, wasted a lot of time on this morning. But there's one final word that I guarantee at one point or so in your lives, you have struggled to say correctly. Not because you can't pronounce it, but because, actually, it's probably one of the hardest words in the English language to say. For some people, that would be the top word that they cannot say. Saying sorry, actually, in the 21st century, is counter-cultural. And by that, I mean our culture doesn't really say sorry unless it absolutely has to. In the 21st century, saying sorry is saying I'm wrong and I'm defeated. It's a a word of defeat, it's seen as. But as Christians, we know the word sorry is actually a word of victory. But we'll come on to that in a minute. Many people struggle to say sorry. And if they say sorry, it's because they've got no other choice. They've been found out. Think of uh, a famous golfer who has uh, had 10 years of affairs with different women. Denied it, denied it, denied it. Suddenly it all came in the papers. Next thing you know, he's there apologizing profusely. He didn't mean it. He's sorry. Countless politicians have done the same thing and other important leaders in the public eye. Sorry is often the only word used when they've been caught out and they've got nothing else to say. And some people don't like saying the word sorry because people take the mickey. Uh, If you remember back uh, a few years ago, Nick Clegg, uh, bless him, when the Liberal Democrats joined with the Conservatives um, and they uh, joined in government and uh, he made a, a manifesto pledge that they wouldn't, uh, they'd vote against topping up, uh, sorry, tuition fees. And uh, once they went in with the Conservatives, that all went out the window. And he made a very heartfelt apology. And uh, Audio Boy or Cassette Boy on YouTube remixed it into a song. And so he's had the mickey taken out of him. It's quite funny, but that's a different, a different issue. Um, some people don't like saying sorry because it's painful. Uh, I did have a short clip, but I won't show it. But if you were to go home and look up on something like YouTube, uh, Frost and Nixon, and uh, David Frost... Uh, gets him to say sorry for the Watergate affair, and you can see the agony on Richard Nixon's face as he sort of says, let everybody down. People don't like to say sorry. But this word, as hard as it may be to say, has the power to restore broken relationships, has the power to remove guilt, and it has the power to right wrongs. I'm no Justin Bieber fan. I don't think anybody is, actually. Um, there are more people in France than there are Justin Bieber fans. But Justin Bieber, if you don't know who he is, is a Canadian guy who sings songs that 12-year-olds like. I think that's correct, isn't it? Is that about right, Harriet? You're, you, you must know. I don't know. You're a Justin Bieber fan? Are you? Oh, bless you. Sorry. <laughs> no, you're not. Sorry. I thought, I thought he was kind of past. Anyway, Justin Bieber very fam- became very famous. I'll move swiftly on from that. Um, And he went completely off the rails and uh, driving drunk, shouting, swearing, all sorts of complete mess of his life. And he wrote a song called Sorry recently. And it's about a girl, uh, but some people reckon that actually he's found Jesus, that he's become a Christian. He goes to church every Sunday and they reckon that this song Sorry is actually not just about a woman, but it's about uh, from him to his fans. And 20 times he says the phrase, I'm sorry. And actually he's a lot more popular now than he was before he wrote songs like that. So we move on. Um, the word sorry is a very powerful word. My mum, when she was, uh, she's still a parent, obviously, I'm still here, um, but when I was a younger child, not a child, I'm an adult, but when I was younger as a child, my mum uh, made as many mistakes, I'm sure, um, as I've done with my own two. 
And, uh, but my mum taught me one very important lesson as I grew up. One very, very important lesson. Because on the very odd occasion where I pushed her over the edge and she lost her temper, maybe once or twice a decade that happened, um, or maybe once or twice a week, when I wound her up, and, uh, and you know what it's like when you're a parent, um, I'm beginning to forget because my two are getting older. If you've got younger kids, bless you, it is really hard, isn't it? And they drive you up the, up the wall, round the twist and back again, and they don't care when they're doing it. And you lose your temper and you say things you shouldn't say and you shout more than you wish you did and it's really, really hard. And if you feel like that this morning, I want to just encourage you, it does get easier. And there does come a point where you forget that you ever did it and they forget that you did it, more importantly. Um, But my mum, when I used to wind her up and she would shout at me and uh, and I'd be sent to my bedroom and I'd be sitting there like that, or in tears actually, she'd come up to me without fail every single time and she would knock on my door and she would say, I'm sorry for the way I shouted at you. And you know what? Just that little act of my mum made me a different sort of teenager. I can remember at 15 going into her bedroom, laying on her bed when I'd wound her up, and I would say, I'm sorry. And with my own children, I often will say, I'm sorry. Me and Andrea both do this. We will say, we're sorry. We shouldn't have said that. We shouldn't have shouted. We shouldn't have done that. And they then say sorry as well. So sorry is an important thing. And actually, the word sorry... Uh, is right at the heart of the Christian faith. Jesus says in uh, the book of Matthew, chapter 18, verse 21 um, to 22, uh, says, Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother and sister who sins against me? Up to seven. It's enough, isn't it? Jesus answered, no, not seven times, but 70 times seven And in Matthew chapter 5, verse 23 to 24, Jesus again says, Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift at the altar. Go and be reconciled to them and then come and offer your gift. I wonder this morning, is there anyone that you need to say sorry to? Is there anyone, it might be a family member or a friend or a member in the church, that you have to say, I'm sorry? Um, Jesus says it's so important that even if you come to offer something to God, put it down and make it right. And equally, is there someone that you need to forgive finally uh, in this church or in your family or in your past who has said sorry, they may not even have said sorry, but you need to say, I forgive you. Be brave, be bold and forgive and ask forgiveness. And repentance, which is a grander word for saying sorry, repentance and forgiveness in saying sorry to God are at the core of the Christian message. Being a Christian isn't simply the act of trusting and believing in Jesus. Being a Christian is the moment when you look at your life and you say, I'm sorry, God, that you weren't in it. And you turn from your sin and you follow Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 7, 10, uh, 7 9 to 10, Paul writes, Yet I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, so you would not, so, so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. In Acts chapter 20, Verse 21, we read, I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Being becoming a Christian is about turning from a life without him, being sorry 
and following Jesus. In Isaiah 55, 6 to 7, we read these words. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them. And to your God, for he will freely pardon. Following Christ isn't simply adding him to the journey that you've already decided you're going to go on. Becoming a Christian is recognizing that the life you led without Christ was sinful because he wasn't king. And so through repentance, you turn 180 degrees. That's what repent means. And you follow his direction. It's not that you take him with you. You go with him. Becoming a Christian is turning 180 degrees from a life where he wasn't king. Here's a quote. Uh, Somebody once said this, that repentance is heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it, a sincere commitment to forsake it, and walk in obedience to Christ. So let me ask a question this morning. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, let me ask you this. Is Jesus simply an add-on to your life? Have you added him on much like an extra to your BT package? Are you trying to get him to follow you with the life you've already determined? Or are you recognizing that that life is wrong and you want to follow him? Do we recognize the sin in our lives? The words you use, the way you approach your finances, other people, your view of sex. Do you look at what's wrong in your life that's sinful? Do you see it as wrong in the sight of God? And do you assume that God isn't bothered? Or do you start and end your day asking for forgiveness for the King of Kings, for the things that are in your life that are wrong? Let me tell you that real growing faith sees the sin in its life and says sorry. Real growing faith recognizes sin in its life and says sorry regularly. Psalm 51, we're going to look at just for a few minutes um, this morning. Psalm 51 is our passage. If you've got it open, that would be great. Um, It's in the book of Psalms, obviously, which is sort of halfway through uh, the Bible. Psalm 51, I'm not sure if it's going to appear or not. Um, It's a psalm written by King David. David was the great king in the Old Testament. And uh, and this great king, David, did a terrible thing um, at one point in his life. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, we read a really terrible story. This man, David, had become king. Israel was engaged in a few conflicts with its enemies. It was beginning to become a stable empire. And war was raging one day. And we read in 2 Samuel chapter 11 that King David, when he should have been fighting, stayed at home. He stayed at home and he took it easy. Sometimes we're at our most vulnerable to sin and temptation when we're at our most relaxed. So 2 Samuel chapter 11 tells us the story that as David stayed home while his nation fought for its survival, he goes on to his roof of his palace and he gazes at all the other roofs of the other houses around him and he notices a woman naked washing. And as he watches her washing, he doesn't think, oh, I'll go in. We shouldn't be looking at that. He becomes inflamed with lust and passion. And what does he do? Does he think, oh, sorry, Lord, I shouldn't have looked at that? He thinks, yeah, I know what I'm going to do. I'm the king. And he summons Bathsheba to his house for sex. There is no other way of putting that. Sin number one. But of course, if you do that sort of thing, he soon discovers that she's pregnant. She's pregnant 
And that's not right either in that scenario. So what does he do? Ask forgiveness? No. He calls her husband, who is fighting the war he should have been fighting, back from the front line, a man named Uriah. And he says to her, go home, have some wine, have dinner. In other words, the subtext is go home and please do the things married couples do because I'm in trouble here. But Uriah is a great man. And he says, no way. My friends are fighting for the country, so I'm not even going to go in my house. I'm going to sleep on the pavement because why should I be comfortable when they're fighting? So he sleeps on the pavement and David thinks, I'm not getting going to get this covered i'm going to get found out so what does he do he sends him back onto the front line he says to his commander where the fighting's at its worst stick him right at the front and just when it gets really bad bring everybody back it's a bit like that joke you know that joke when everyone says we say you say to all your friends let's sing a song and everyone starts the first line and then you all go quiet and the one person sings on their own it's like that but with Tragic circumstances, obviously. Um, But they send him and they pull all the troops back. And poor old Uriah is killed in battle. Sin number three. David, guilty? Nah. He marries Bathsheba and they have their child. And he gets on with his life. Sin number four. But then God, who is bothered, by the way, in all this, is distinctly bothered, sends a man named Nathan, a prophet, who confronts David face to face about his sin. David is broken hearted. He realizes how wretched he really is. And Psalm 51, which I'll read in a moment, is his poetic response to God and his prayer. Let me read it to you. It's, it's, I'll just read the first few verses. He writes this, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfading love, according to your great compassion, Blot out my transgressions, wash away my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth. In the inner parts, you teach me wisdom in the innermost place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. This is David's uh, heartfelt poem, listing just how sorry he really is. This is his low point, but it's also his salvation, because God does ultimately forgive this terrible man. And so this morning, let me tell you, there is no low point from which God cannot rescue us. There is no prison of guilt which God cannot liberate you from. And there is no shame that God cannot wipe away. His method, however, is forgiveness sought through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Genuine repentance before God remains the only real place of liberty for the human soul. There is no other place. True freedom comes from our surrender to God's mercy. So if you haven't done it already, make it a habit in your Christian life to to not okay your sin, to not live with it or sweep it under the carpet. Make it your habit to go to God every day and say sorry and let him forgive you. So back to Psalm 51. 
um, just a few minutes looking through it. This poem just contains four essential elements about what it means to say sorry between us and God. Four elements of repentance and four things that we could probably carry on into our normal lives and relationships with each other. The first is realisation. David's repentance started when he realised that he was wrong, when he realised he'd sinned. Verses 3 to 6, he says, I know my transgression. My sin is always before me. Surely I was sinful at birth. He doesn't run away from his mistakes. He doesn't make excuses. He takes it on the chin and he accepts it. He grasps his sin, that it wasn't just against Bathsheba and Uriah, but ultimately against God. And that God has the right to judge him and punish him if necessary. He understands that he's fallen and sinful from birth. And true repentance starts there. True repentance is when we are honest before the King of Kings. And we say, I did it because I wanted to. I did it because I meant it. I did it because I'm bad. Do you know, um, if you owe someone an apology this morning... Nothing robs the healing power of the phrase, I'm sorry, when you follow it up with, however. And then you list seven reasons why it wasn't really your fault in the first place. I'm sorry that I snapped at you, but you are an annoying person. (laughs) I am tired. I've had a difficult week. So what? Everybody's had a difficult week. Everybody's tired. Own it and accept it. And be honest about it. Don't blame other people. If you owe someone a sorry, please just say, I'm sorry, and stop. Don't tell them it's really secretly them. Because they won't accept it. Trust me. It doesn't go down well. Repentance starts when you realise and you accept and you own it. The second thing David does is he pleads, he admits his sin, and then he pleads for God's mercy and God's goodness. Verses uh, 1 to 2, and then 7 to 9, Uh, 7 to 12, sorry. I'll read 7 to 12. He says, Cleanse me with hyssop and I'll be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you've crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sin and blot out my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a a steadfast spirit within me. Do Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. He doesn't just go to God and say, I'm rubbish, Lord, I'm awful, I'm a sinner. He then carries on and asks God to forgive him. And the great privilege of being a Christian isn't just that I say I'm wrong, but I'm actually allowed to ask God for forgiveness. He doesn't just come and list why he's awful. He comes with a purpose to seek the forgiveness of God. And if you've done things wrong this morning, if you've done things you're ashamed of, and you know you're wrong, God doesn't just want you to feel really, really bad about yourself. He wants you to take up the offer and ask for forgiveness. He wants to pronounce you clean this morning. And there's a subtle message for all of our human relationships here as well. Because sometimes you might be happy to admit you're wrong. Maybe, I'm, I, sometimes we're happy to say, I'll hold my hands up, that was me. It's me, Gov, I did it. What are you going to do? Sorry. Sometimes we're happy to even say sorry and own our mistakes, as long as we can move on really quickly. I wonder if that's only half the job done. I wonder if in our human relationships, we ought to actually 
add a little question at the end. But rather than say, Barry, I'm really sorry for uh, shouting at you last week and moving on, that I should follow it up with... I didn't shout at Barry, by the way. Um, I don't think I did, anyway. Um, I'm really sorry for shouting at you. Will you forgive me? Because then he's got to say yes. God asks us, wants us to ask for forgiveness because he wants to say yes. I reckon that our world is littered with relationships where one half is happily thinking all is well because I've owned up and said sorry, only to realize that the other half of that relationship is secretly thinking you because they've never actually forgiven. But they're thinking, well, hang on a minute. I said I'm sorry, I owned up. And they're thinking, but you never asked me to forgive you. And I wonder if actually we ought to get into the habit of saying, I'm sorry, will you please forgive me? And then they have to then forgive you. And if you ask that question, you have to say yes and mean it, even if it rips your heart out. I wonder how many marriages, even this morning, have one half who says sorry and is quite happily thinking, I'm a good guy, I'm a good woman, I say sorry all the time. But they've never actually asked, will you forgive me? Do you forgive me? And worked it through from there. Number three, so after realizing and owning his sin and pleading with God's forgiveness, he actually has an expectation that God's going to forgive him. What's really amazing about the language in Psalm 51 is in verses 6 to 8, you've got two phrases. He says, cleanse me, wash me, in verses 6 to 8. And uh, those two phrases, um, you would assume, are sort of uh, imperatives. Imperatives almost like a command. You know, get up, sit down, do this, do that. They're written like that in English. Wash me, cleanse me, God. Almost like saying, please, will you? But actually, in the original language of Psalm 51, they're actually written in the imperfect future tense, which, of course, you all are familiar with. (laughs) Well, maybe you are. And what that actually should or is saying in their original language isn't cleanse me, wash me, as in I hope one day you will. What David writes there is you will cleanse me, you will wash me. As he goes to ask God for forgiveness, he doesn't do it thinking maybe God will forgive me. He does it knowing I know God will forgive me and I know God is going to wash me and I know God is going to cleanse me. And the amazing part of saying sorry to God, unlike most human beings who say, "Mm, I forgive you, but secretly keep a little note for later, don't they? How many times in human relationships do you bring something out from 10 years ago? Stop it. You know, you always do that. Let's drop the phrase always. Or remember that thing you did. No, you shouldn't be remembering it either. God's forgotten about it. Why haven't you? But actually, unlike most human beings who either carry a bit of bitterness or a desire to get some revenge, when we ask God for true forgiveness, we can be confident 100% of the time that he will forgive us and he will clean us and he will cleanse us. Can that be said of you and me when someone says, please forgive me? Can they say, I know you'll forgive me because you're so godly? Or will they be thinking... That's, that's us finished. They're never going to ever let this go. I know people like that. And they never let it go. And you think, come on. It's doing your head in like it's doing their head in. So he realizes his sin. He pleads for God's mercy. He expects God's forgiveness. 
And number four, he makes promises to God. The element of repentance where Psalm 51 finishes isn't just with him being forgiven and getting on with his life. He then makes God promises. Verse 13 to 15. He says, then, so once you've washed me and cleansed me and hidden your face from my sin, then I will teach transgressors, transgressors sorry, um, your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. How amazing is that? Repentance is about more than just wanting God to move. It's about us then turning 180 degrees and determining to live different. And so I want to end by asking um, just three questions. Then we're going to sing a song, and then I want us all to say Psalm 51 together, um, if that's possible. Hopefully it'll be on the screen. Um, But I'm going to ask you three questions. And I'm just going to give you a minute. You can shut your eyes if you prefer sort of personal privacy, but you don't have to. Um, but I'll ask you three questions. If you're a Christian this morning, just think for a moment about how you currently live. God is holy, remember. God is perfect in every single way. He says no bad word. He has no wrong thoughts. And he asks us to be perfect like he is perfect, to at least try. Just think for a moment about how you currently live your Christian life. Is it right before that God Think of your relationships. Think of what you prioritize. Think of the words that come out of your mouth, the deeds that you perform. Which one of those do you know in your heart of hearts is a sin? And are you really hoping that God isn't bothered? Just take a moment. painful to do this and recognize that but it's good god wants to wash us clean so question two thinking of all that stuff or the other stuff that you're more conscious of when was the last time that you said sorry to the king of kings and the lord of lords Question number three, is there anyone in your life, here in this church or somewhere else, that you've wronged and who you've never said sorry to? And you know that relationship has never been the same. But pride gets in the way and all sorts of things and it's too long, too much water under the bridge. Is there someone here, even this morning, that you have to say sorry to? Or is there someone that's been trying to say sorry to you? By the way, the act or the words they've said, and you still refuse to forgive them. Maybe in reality they've not done anything wrong, but you've just got annoyed with them.
Colossians 1 says, For he rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. What I'd like to do is just to stand together. And I'd like us just to say Psalm 51 together. And then we'll sing both songs after that, perhaps. But if you'd like just to stand, because this psalm is a prayer. And so that's not your King David, um, but whatever uh, may have gone through your mind or my mind in the last five, ten minutes or even half an hour, um, whatever you know that God wants you to deal with, uh, whether it be done to you or done by you, let's make this psalm our prayer. And actually, as you say it, we'll say it nice and slow. Just let God, by his Holy Spirit, work in your heart. Daphne talked about owning the passage and letting it work in you. Well, this is a passage of the living, breathing word of God. Let it minister to you. And then we'll sing the last couple of songs. So she would say together, Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Let's just pray before we sing um, a song together. Father God, I just want to lift up all that prayer. That is a prayer. Lord, a prayer written thousands of years before us. Yet, Lord, one that we can identify with this morning. Lord, forgive us for our sin. Lord, we don't want to shy away from being honest with you. Lord, you already know that we, what we've done. You already know the thoughts we've thought, the things we've looked at, the things we've done when no one's been watching. You know everything about us. Yet, Lord, we can be confident that you will cleanse us. You will wash us. And we know that, Lord, because Christ has already died, already been risen, already ascended to the right hand of yourself. Lord, he is coming again to judge the living and the dead. Now names are already in the Lamb's book of life. We've already been cleaned. So, Lord, may we continue to work out our salvation. May we be brave enough to say sorry to you, first and foremost, that every sin offends you. But, Lord, brave enough to make relationships right. Lord, may our sorries be like ripples in a pond. Lord, great waves, in fact, that affect other people. Lord, we thank you that we can say sorry. We thank you, Lord, because you want to say, I forgive you. 
Lord, you wanted it so much, you allowed your son to be nailed to a cross. Lord, faith and repentance is life. There is no other way to find true liberty for the human soul except the cross of Calvary. Lord, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.